page 1412, if you're using a pew Bible. Page 1412, Luke chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 10. This is the word of God. And all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Beloved people of God, today we look at the lost coin, verses 8 through 10. The lost coin, verses 8 through 10. 10, with the theme, God's diligent, careful search for a lost, lowly sinner results in great joy. God's diligent, careful, extensive search for a lost, lowly sinner results in great joy. As we noted last week, Luke 15 contains three related parables. All three focus on joy and focus on joy over the recovery of lost things or persons. They focus on joy, particularly over the recovering of lost things or persons. Last week, the lost sheep What a beautiful parable, of course. Here the shepherd goes and he searches for that bleating, perhaps bleeding as well, but certainly bleating sheep out in the wilderness. Puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. And today, the lost coin, and Lord willing, uh, next time, the lost son. Now, one of the things that you note here as you read through Luke chapter 15 is that there is 
an increased emphasis on joy. It accumulates, it gets bit bigger, if you will. And this especially is in contrast to the Pharisees' lack of joy. Notice verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes complained. They grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, uh, Jimmy, can you mute that, please? I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. They grumbled about Jesus' receptions of publicans and sinners. Thank you. And so therefore, now I want you to think about this just a second. I want you to think about this in terms of of religious people or in terms of church people, right? Isn't it the case, is it not the case that many people in the world have this sort of of, um, understanding of religious people or church people as being sort of, um, sort of above others, sort of having that feeling of superiority. We are the holy ones. We are the righteous ones, and so forth. Right. And you see, what Jesus does is he turns that upside down, doesn't he? And he says, "It's the. It, it is precisely to the ones who are lowly." to the ones who are not likely prospects, to the ones who are sinners, who are notorious for their being rebels against God, it is to them that my message goes. But notice that these sourpusses, if I can put it that way, these religious leaders, rather should have rejoiced in the grace of God bringing salvation. Now, this particular parable with regard to the coin does not violate natural probability. It would be just like a woman to be agitated over and to be diligent in her search for the lost coin. It would also be quite likely for an emotional cry of joy and for her being excited, enthusiastic, as she calls together her friends and her neighbors. But you know, this is interesting, the second of three parables, isn't it? And as I mentioned last week, I'm following a number of commentators, including A.B. Bruce and uh, Richard uh, Shevenick's Trench, among others. This second of three parables appears to be almost anticlimactic, doesn't it? See, the, the shepherd has to leave 99 sheep in order to go looking for the lost one. Furthermore, a sheep is animate. That is to say, it has life within itself. You know the word animation, like cartoons? You see animated cartoons on TV on Saturday morning. Animation means it has life. It's animated, it has life. Well, sheep, not a person, but it's still animated, it has feelings, you, you know, and you can relate to it. In contrast to a coin which is inanimate. And then the coin, even though it does say it's a silver coin, it is called a drachma, 
which has very little intrinsic value. But of course, that is precisely the point. My friends, that is precisely the point. The recovery of even that which was low in the, in the view of the world, the, the recovery of that which is not much thought of by the world can be the cause of great joy. And why should God then not take pleasure in the rescue and the recovery of these sinners and these tax collectors, these publicans? Now the emphasis then in this parable is not so much on God's compassion as there might be in the other two parables, but rather it's an emphasis on God's ownership and his divine jealousy, the fact that he owns these, in this case, these coins. But the other thing we note here is that there's also an emphasis on the thoroughness of the search, the thoroughness of the search. That's true, the the shepherd had to go out into the wilderness and find the sheep and so forth, but you get the sense in reading this little parable here, verses 8 through 10, don't you get the sense of how difficult it is? Have you ever lost something that, a little something, maybe? Say, like, oh dear, where did it get to? You know, where did my tie tack get to? Or whatever it may happen to be. Or maybe you lost a, uh, a ring or whatever it may happen to the house. I'm sure it's got to be here somewhere. Where is it? And you panic. And so what does the woman do here? She lights a lamp. She takes a broom and she sweeps the house. She desperately looks under every nook and cranny. She desperately tries, but could it have fallen under, under this little bit of, of uh, furniture here or maybe the wall here or maybe a crack in the floor? And so she's looking desperately for it. And so there is a thoroughness to this search. And it has been suggested that what we find here is particularly the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it's been suggested that here in these three parables we have the three persons of the Trinity. In the first one, the Good Shepherd, well, we know who the Good Shepherd is. It's Jesus. He is the Lord's my shepherd. I'll not want. He's the one who leads me beside the still waters into the green pasture. And so the Lord Jesus is the one who goes out and finds the lost sheep. Of course, next time in terms of the lost son, well, it's the picture of the father, is it not? The father of the Trinity, of the Godhead. But here, with this diligent, detailed, careful search, is this not a picture of the Holy Spirit? Well, with that as a background, then, let's look at the lost sinner, which is what is being represented here. The lost sinner. The lost sinner. This is what is being portrayed as a sinner. This is an obvious reference, by the way. This is what we found already in verse 1. And all the tax collectors and the sinners, the ones that are notorious for being sinners, not the upright 
not the noble, not the respectable people, but the sinners of society. Verses 7 and 10, the same way. There is joy over one heaven who re- uh, over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But let me also, my friends, say this. Although that's the picture of the parable. That's the particular application. There's also a broad and universal application. Romans 3.23 reminds us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every last one of us is a sinner. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You think you know yourself? The Bible says you don't know yourself at all. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's true of every one of us sitting here today. So there's a broad universal application, but again, there is this specific application. For even even the people who are notorious sinners, the prostitutes, the drug dealers, who are the the criminals, who are of relatively insignificant value in the world's eyes, they, they too can repent. And when they do, you know what happens. There is great joy. For you see, they, along with everyone else, they are still stamped like coins. You know what a coin is? You you stamp the coins. You stamp the coins. Like coins, every one of us is stamped in God's image. We are all stamped in God's image even those who are the outcast, the ones not highly regarded. And they are, what are they? Well, they are, as we see in the parable, lost. They are lost. They are lost in reference to God. Now, sheep, as we mentioned, has feelings. And a son, as we'll see at the end of chapter 15, can reflect on his miserable condition. Coin, as we've already mentioned, is inanimate. It has no feelings. But specifically, the coin is not in its proper place. It is not in its proper place. It is therefore useless by not being in its proper place. This is like a person who is living in vain or one not fulfilling the purpose of his existence. And particularly, listen children, Particularly, one who is forgetful of his chief end. Now, someone I'm sure will ask an 11-year-old later, what is man's chief end? And I'm sure that she will say that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We all know that, question and answer of the Shorter Catechism. But if you are forgetful of that chief end, that chief purpose, 
if you are living as if God does not exist or if you are not caring to be a shining example to others, then you're like this lost coin. So we see then the lost sinner. And now secondly, we see God's careful search, his careful search. Notice the diligence here, the care. The house probably did not have adequate natural lighting. So you walk into a house and it doesn't have very many windows. You're going to need artificial lighting. No windows or very few of them, basically only a door to let in light. That would have been uh, a typical house, particularly for a poor person during that time. So the woman lights a lamp and she takes a broom and she sweeps the house carefully till she finds the drachma, the coin. She looks in all those dark places, the nooks and crannies. But not even that is sufficient. Do you see what it says here? Is that um, uh, the, the implication at least here is that she sweeps, she even sweeps together all the dust. She searches, she sweeps the house. You see, if you're sweeping the house, what do you use a broom for? To get dust up, right? And so she sweeps together all the dust and looks through it. She looks, as, she looks narrowly at everything resembling a coin. And then she spots it. I want to apply this then to redemption accomplished and applied. Redemption accomplished and applied. Where you see the basis of salvation must never be underestimated. The basis of salvation must never be underestimated. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. Jesus Christ was made under the law. Jesus Christ led a humble life for 33 years on this earth. The Lord Jesus was abandoned by God, suffered many things, and was finally crucified on a cross. But then God had to apply this great redemption. And how did he apply it? How did he apply the work of Jesus? He sent his Holy Spirit. And God, therefore has sought out many a sinner. We had an example of that today in our other scripture reading from John 4, verses 1 through 30, with regard to the Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritans, you may recall, uh, were those of the ten tribes of ancient Israel, but they had gone into captivity. There had also been intermarriage with other other people groups. They had come back into the land. They were not held in high esteem by the Jews there in Jerusalem. They were despised, as a matter of fact. They were looked on as very low in in terms of, of the chain of being. And yet we read in John 4 that Jesus must needs go through why because he had a woman he had to meet in order to bring her salvation 
I think of Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, the thief on the cross. You remember the, the, the two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus? Both thieves, if you read, I think it's Mark, both thieves in one of the gospel accounts ridicule Christ, mock him. But then you read Luke 23, and one of those thieves comes to faith, seeing Jesus on the cross. The one Christ, this criminal who was being crucified, was brought to faith so that Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. We think of Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul. He was on, his, on the road to Damascus, what is today the capital of Syria, in order to arrest Christians. He was zealous in his opposition to Christ and to Christianity. And what happens? The Lord Jesus appears at midday and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And so Saul, now the Apostle Paul, is converted. I mean, the least likely, if you were living back then, if you were a believer, you would think that Saul, he is the least likely prospect that will ever become a follower of Jesus. And yet Jesus searched him out, found him, brought him back. Matthew himself. Matthew himself was a tax collector. Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, was a tax collector. And Jesus sought him out. And we can also point to John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Remember that? The woman caught in adultery. Jesus says, do you have any accusers left here? When, when remember he said, whoever you know, was without sin cast the first stone, and they all melt away. And Jesus says, do you have any accusers? She said, no man, Lord. He says, go and sin no more. But not only do we find examples of God's diligent search in Scripture, but we also find such examples throughout church history. I think of St. Augustine, who lived about 1,500 years ago, had a very sinful youth. One of the books I'm reading right now is called The Confessions of uh, St. Augustine. And uh, in his early days, he was guilty of theft and sexual immorality as well as heresy. But his mother, Monica, was a godly woman. Maybe you have a godly woman or a godly grandmother or whomever. And she was praying. She prayed for the salvation of Augustine. And at one point, he heard a child's voice saying, take and read, take and read, take and read the scriptures. And he was gloriously converted I think of John Newton, who wrote the poem Amazing Grace, a one-time slave trader. That is to say, he was in charge of a slave ship. And he was converted to Christ, became a preacher of the gospel. I think of Tom Skinner, who was a black preacher's kid, so you may have heard of him, who became a gang leader 
and then was converted. Or I think of Chuck Colson, one of Richard Nixon's hatchet men during the Watergate affair, who was born again. And so we see then God's diligent, careful search. But we now want to ask why. What are the reasons? Well, for all, my friends, the lost sinner belongs to God. The lost sinner belongs to God. God keeps his covenant promises. How many a mother has claimed God's promises for a wayward child who had been dedicated to him in baptism? But here we can see the viewpoint. It is God who is faithful despite our, despite that child's unfaithfulness. God is faithful and he goes out and reaches that person. God keeps his covenant and God's honor is at stake. Can he recover? Can God recover that which belongs to him? Is, it, is God strong enough? You remember how Moses made this very appeal to God with regard to his glory and honor with respect to the children of Israel when God was going to destroy the children of Israel in the wilderness after taking them out of, the, uh, of Egypt. And they rebelled. God was going to destroy them, Moses said. What are they going to say about you, God? He appealed, in other words, to the very glory and honor of God. God's honor is at stake. And so, first of all, then, the lost sinner belongs to God. That's why there's this diligent search. But notice also that the coin is part of a complete set of ten. Not just one, it's part of a complete set. Now, there's been speculation as to the significance of this coin. Is it perhaps one of a set of coins given the woman as a dowry upon her marriage? Is the coin part of money necessary to pay rent or some other bill? In any case, the coin is one-tenth of the woman's money, a tithe of it. The coin then is part of a complete set. Indeed, the sinner is important to God. He is a part of the elect. Jesus prayed, did he not, in John 17, so that none of the chosen ones would be lost. So, we see the lost sinner. We see God's careful search. And now, thirdly, the great joy. The joy. The rejoicing. Why, my friends, there was rejoicing by angels when Jesus was born, was there not? There, is, there has been rejoicing by angels as they wonder at God's grace, as they see the redemption applied, the redemption that Jesus purchased at the cross for his elect applied to lost sinners. And they wonder. They're in amazement. But my friends, there's also rejoicing by God. Now, this is what we referred to last week as an anthropopathism. Isn't that a fancy word? Anthropos, man, pathism, pathos, 
emotion. And so we have to be careful in this, but nevertheless, the Bible uses this kind of terminology of rejoicing. But not only is there an anthropopathism, there's also an anthropomorphism. That is to say, what is God being compared to? He's being compared with a poor peasant woman. Isn't that amazing? Pair him, this poor woman. But why is, why is Jesus doing this? Because you can feel, you can sense the joy that even this lowly woman would experience. That's why Jesus is doing that. Now let me be clear. We don't want to say that God is male-female or father-mother or anything like that. But it is still remarkable, is it not, that even as Jesus says in Matthew 23, like a hen would gather her chicks under her wing, so I would gather you, Jerusalem, unto me, but you would not. So it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. It's an anthropomorphism, comparing himself, in this case, to this lowly woman. But there is joy then, and this figure of speech then, to convey that idea of joy. There is indeed a successful recovering by God of what is his own. This is the divine joy. You know, one of the minor prophets is uh, Zephaniah. Uh, In in, uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, in Zephaniah chapter 3, we see that God's people are to rejoice. They are to rejoice, sing, O daughter of Zion, to your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, and so forth. And then in verse 17, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. It's like a lullaby. It's God's lullaby. It's God singing over lost sinners that have been recovered. We find the same thing in Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now I have three very brief points of application today. The first is this. Remember God's sovereignty. Remember God's sovereignty. He is almighty. And he is omniscient. He sees everything. And you know, he will find that lost coin because he knows where it is. And he is light. He himself is light. He, it, for the Spirit is the one who brings illumination. Remember God's sovereignty in salvation. Number two, 
Acknowledge the worth of every human being. Acknowledge the worth of every human being. You see, there is a value that's inherent, that's intrinsic to us. There is a dignity to human life. No matter how low it may appear, no matter how wretched, how wicked a sinner may be. This idea of the dignity of man, the worth of every individual, is in contrast to all sorts of thoughts and people. Abortionist. Those who don't care for unborn children, but would rather rip them to shreds. Or even infanticide, leaving them to die, refusing to feed the children. This is going on today in the United States of America, fostered by wicked politicians and legislators and governors. Evolutionists, those who believe in Charles Darwin, who look disapprovingly at all morality. It's dog-eat-dog. It's the law of the jungle. Man has no dignity. Or as people in college may learn with B.F. Skinner, the psychologist, his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity, man has no freedom, man has no dignity. That's the view of many in academia. Or materialists who view wealth as more important than the human soul, or maybe there is no human soul. Or those with a certain mentality of saying we're of a better sort, whether it be in terms of intelligence, or social class, or race. But what is particularly amazing is God's care for such individuals, no matter who they are or how the world thinks of them. First of all, sinners. Those who are notorious for their rebellion against God. Or those who are not worth much in the world's view, like this peasant woman here in the parable. And so it is amazing, is it not, in terms of this. But notice that this is true not only with regard to God, but it is also true with regard to the church, reflecting God's desire here. The church, animated, energized, brought to life by the Holy Spirit, also seeks for the lost. Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit... And the bride, that's the church, say, come, come. God's covenant people, you see, must work for and rejoice in the reclamation of the lost. It is particularly the case that we must have respect to all men, for we don't know who the elect are, especially the elect God's covenant people are his own and remade in his image. And in this regard, let me just say one other thing with regard to respecting the the worthiness of everyone. Conversion 
often is a dusty, dirty work and causes commotion. As that woman was searching and was sweeping the dust, don't you think the dust was stirred up a bit? Conversion often is dusty and dirty and can cause commotion. And yet there is a desire to see, to seek, to search for that one lost coin and bring it back. And the third point of application is this. My friends, be engaged in stewardship and Christian service. You see, the lost coin was lost in the sense of not being useful. It wasn't part of the set anymore. It only had nine out of ten. And by, by being outside of, you see, outside of the covenant community, if you will, to continue the analogy here, it wasn't useful. Every believer, then, is to be involved. Every believer is to be involved in the master's work. There is a special place for everyone. All the roles are not the same, but they are all valuable and important. Every believer is to be involved. And even though you may think, I don't have much to offer God, first of all, I would say, come to Jesus Repent of your sins. Make sure you're in a right relationship with God. And then realize, then recognize, then acknowledge the fact that as a set of coins, you are important as you get put back in the place where you can be useful. The lost sheep today coin and the joy in heaven the joy by the angels expressed by the angels the joy in their presence because God himself rejoices as that coin is found and made part of the sect once again Amen. Will you please stand for prayer And Lord, we do pray that thy Holy Spirit would apply this message to our hearts, the same Spirit who rooted the earth, and the same Spirit who illumines our hearts, who convicts us of our sin, who convinces us of the truth of the gospel, who breaks us and molds us and us so that we then can be used in Christ's service. And so, Father, be pleased to hear this our prayer. Work powerfully in our midst this day, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Psalm 145, Psalm 145, Selection B. 145.